My intention this morning is to deal with Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 12 here in the first service and then finish our study of the same text in the second service. The text deals with the introductory ministry of John the Baptist. And it's interesting, I think, that all four of the gospel writers, though, though they each have their own perspective and they each have their own purpose in writing their gospel, all four of them include the same basic introductory message. For all four of the gospel writers, you're not going to get to Jesus without going through John the Baptist first. So it's worth spending the time to have two messages from the same text today. I mention this because I want to make it clear that if you only hear one of the messages, you're getting half the story. So to be fair to the text, I think we need to look at the basic message that John preaches specifically in verse 2, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In this service, our focus will be on the baptizer and the kingdom and in the second service we'll look at the baptizer and repentance matthew chapter 3 starting at verse 1 says in those days john the baptist came preaching in the wilderness of judea and saying repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand for this is he who was spoken of by the prophet isaiah saying The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John himself was clothed in camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem, all Judea and all the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not think to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the tree. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cast down and thrown into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand. And he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, and he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. If we could place ourselves back in the sandals of the people of first century Judea, if we could, you know, put on our Jews' shoes for a moment, we would understand that this was a time of prophetic expectation. They were awaiting the fulfillment of God's Old Testament promises. And to some extent, I think you know, and I think most of us would agree, they were waiting for the Christ, the Messiah. But it was not just that. That's not the only promise they embraced. The first and greatest hope was that of the Messiah. They wanted the 
promised Messiah who was going to come to overthrow the oppression of their enemies and to establish the kingdom of heaven on earth. Another expectation was that the prophet Elijah would return. In the final verses of the Old Testament, in Micah chapter 4, verse 5, 400, before 400 years of silence, God promised to send the prophet of Elijah, the, send the prophet of Elijah before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And so to this day, Jewish folks will still celebrate the Passover by leaving their door open and setting a place at the table for Elijah in case Elijah wants to show up. Another Old Testament hope was that the prophet like Moses would come. Deuteronomy 18.18 promises God will send a prophet like Moses to declare his word to the people. And so they're awaiting all of those things to come to pass. And it's important that we know the Jewish people were waiting for all those promises to be fulfilled because when the New Testament opens, and it opens with John the Baptist arriving on the scene, they don't know what to make of him. They think, well, maybe he's what we're waiting for, but they don't exactly understand which role he fulfills. So, Look at how the Apostle John describes this. Leave, leave a bookmark here at Matthew 3, but look at John chapter 1 for just a moment. John chapter 1, starting at verse 19, says, Now this is the testimony of John, that is John the Baptist, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. Then they said to him, who are you? That we may give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now you can see the struggle, right? Is John, is John the Messiah? No, he's not. Is John the prophet Elijah returned to earth? Is he the prophet like Moses? Because he doesn't seem to fit our our, our pre-made mold of what any of those guys should look like. And so the religious leaders are exasperated by his denial after denial that he is any of those people. And finally they ask, so, so then who are you? What is it that you have to say for yourself? And John's response is to point to the same Old Testament text in Isaiah that Matthew points at in our text. He quotes Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, that there's a voice crying in the wilderness to prepare the way for God, to, to make a highway ready for the arrival of Yahweh himself. John says, that's me. That's what I'm doing. I am just a voice. And if we could put ourselves back in those Jews' shoes, we would, we would look at John the Baptist and unanimously agree that this man, he is highly unusual, but he is undeniably compelling. In fact, he is so 
compelling in his preaching and his personality that many of the most well-known disciples of Jesus that we come to know and love in the Gospels actually began as followers, disciples of John the Baptist. Matthew is going to sort of weave the story of John the Baptist in and out of his story of Jesus' ministry. Luke, on the other hand, basically begins his gospel with the story of a semi-miraculous birth of John the Baptist. Luke's gospel begins with the story of this. There is an Old Testament priest. and You can, you can follow along with this in Luke chapter 1 if you want to look there. There is an Old Testament priest. Uh, an old Jewish priest named Zacharias and his wife Elizabeth. And this child was coupledless. Cu- uh, <laughs> this child was coupleless. Is that what I just said? <laughs> this couple was childless. That's how you know I'm not inspired. The couple was childless. They were unable to conceive. And, and Luke says they were both well advanced in years. In other words, their hope for having a child was gone. And yet when, when old Zacharias reports to the temple for his twice a year, week-long service at the temple, the job which every priest wants to have when they go, the job of the most honor is to burn the incense in the holy place because you're in there by yourself and everybody else waits outside to see the smoke rising up. So that's when they're going to start praying and it symbolically carries their prayers up into heaven. It's such a coveted job that they would cast lots to see who would get it. And for the first time in his many years of service, the lot falls to Zacharias. But things are not going to go according to plan as Zacharias enters into the darkness of the holy place alone over in the shadows to the right side of the altar of incense. An angel of the Lord appears to him. Luke says in chapter 1 verse 12, when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled and fear fell upon him. No kidding, you would be afraid too. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just and make ready a people prepared for the Lord. This is the work of John the Baptist to Prepare the way, this, this highway, this roadway, Isaiah describes, for the coming of the Lord, to make people ready for the coming of the Lord. You've, you've heard this in, in our text in Matthew, and you've heard it in John's gospel, you've heard it in Luke's gospel, so I might as well read to you the first four verses of Mark's gospel as well. 
Mark's gospel opens this way. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. So all of the gospels start with John the Baptist's story. It, it's front-loaded. It is, it is unavoidable. It is unfortunate that there is this line of theological thought today which essentially dismisses John as irrelevant, right? Well, he did what he did. He got things ready, but now that's over and you don't really need to know about him anymore. But the gospel writers will not take you to Jesus without going through John first. If you want to understand the life and ministry of Jesus, you should spend some time getting to know John the Baptist and how he sort of kicks off the gospel story. The Lord God had promised a forerunner, a prophetic voice in the wilderness who would come and prepare the people for the coming of the Lord. And that's John the Baptist. That's the purpose of his life is to prepare the way for the coming of Jesus. Luke even continues in his gospel telling the story of John's mother Elizabeth as she was pregnant with him and she gets a visit from her cousin Mary who is pregnant with the Lord Jesus completely miraculously. And the the John the Baptist, the infant inside his mother's womb, is leaping with joy being in the presence of Jesus. None of this fits the preconceived notions which the Jewish people had concerning the promises of God. He is not what they expect. In fact, can we just agree? He is downright strange in some ways. You know, nowadays, if a preacher thinks he's great, you're liable to see him selling tickets to hear him speak at some huge venue. But, but where does John go? He's not standing up at the temple or, or, or trying to rent out a, a big lecture hall. Verse 1 says he came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. In the Old Testament, the children of Israel wandered hopelessly in the wilderness for years, learning trust and obedience. They needed to... Think differently before they could enter the promised land. In chapter 4, Jesus is going to have his own wilderness experience. But I think John's out there away from the self-righteous voices of the religious leaders and away from the distractions, proclaiming the message of God to the people to say, you've got to think differently before you're prepared for what's coming. And not only did John choose an odd location, he also exhibits some odd behavior, right? To some extent, the angel promised this to his father Zacharias when he said he wouldn't drink wine or strong drink. That is, he would put some self-imposed restrictions on himself, but apparently those weren't the only ones because Matthew tells us in verse 4, John himself was clothed with camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist and his food was locusts and wild honey. The outfit was not fashionable. The clothes were not comfortable. The food was not delectable, unless a nice crisp locust and honey s'more is your kind of thing. I'm hoping nobody brought locust casserole for the fellowship meal later. Part of this was to 
identify himself with Elijah and the other prophets. In 2 Kings 1, verse 8, it describes Elijah as a hairy man with a leather belt around his waist. So let me just briefly, and I don't want to get too sidetracked here, but let's just briefly talk about this Elijah thing for a moment with the promise that we're going to deal with it more once we get to Matthew chapter 11. But that's going to be a while, so let's just deal with it briefly here. I noted earlier the promise that God made to send Elijah the prophet before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And then in John chapter 1, John the Baptist denies being Elijah. But in Luke's gospel, the angel tells Zacharias, John's father, that John will come in the spirit and power of Elijah. So is John Elijah or not? Well, Yes and no. He is not Elijah reincarnated. Although we could even ask if such a thing would be necessary because Elijah didn't die, he ascended into heaven. John denied that he is literally Elijah, but he did come in the spirit and power of Elijah. He does come preparing people for the arrival of the Lord. And in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus is even going to point this out, that the the rough manner of life that John the Baptist had, he essentially asks people, like, when you went out the wilderness to see John the Baptist, what did you expect to see? A reed that was shaken in the wind? Did you expect to see a man who was, like, delicately dressed? You know better. That's not what John is. He said if you're willing to receive it, this is Elijah who should come. So John is at least a fulfillment of that promise of Elijah. And at the same time, he is not literally Elijah. When Jesus said, if you're willing to receive it, he is Elijah who should come. That means that the fulfillment of God's promise isn't based on whether or not John the Baptist is literally Elijah. The the fulfillment of God's promise is found in whether or not the people are willing to hear his message and prepare their hearts for the coming of the Lord. And John's message is found in verse 2 of our text. It is pretty short. The rest of the text just expounds the implications of John's message. But the message itself is simply found in verse 2. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So think of this. As John is preparing the way of the Lord, as John is turning the hearts of many to Israel their God, his message is as simple as repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's it. Repent is what you need to do because the kingdom of heaven is at hand is the reason that you need to do it. To repent is to have a change of mind in regard to sin, which leads to a change in behavior in regard to sin. While repent is the command of John's message, we're going to deal with that mostly later on in the second service. For the rest of this message, I want to focus on the why of John's command. The why is or because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is the first of 
32 references in Matthew's gospel about the kingdom of heaven. Mark and Luke and the apostle John almost always use the term kingdom of God instead of kingdom of heaven. But it is evident that those two are interchangeable. They, they mean exactly the same thing. The kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God are the same. But I do want to propose a couple of reasons why maybe it is that Matthew decides to use this term kingdom of heaven in his gospel. First off, since his audience is primarily Jewish, it might have been out of respect for their hesitance to use the word or write the word God. Even today, it's very common to see in Jewish writings, instead of the word God, it will be capital G hyphen small d. They don't, they don't even want to write the word God. So by substituting the word heaven, Matthew's making the same point without offending Jewish traditions. The other possibility is that Matthew is actually doing this to make a theological point. The Jewish expectation of the kingdom was that the Messiah would come and, and defeat Israel's enemies and establish a rule on earth with, with like geopolitical borders, right? They basically pictured like when, when the Messiah comes and establishes a kingdom, you'll even be able to see a sign on the interstate that says, now entering the kingdom of God, welcome, unless you're a Gentile. In this gospel, by calling it the kingdom of heaven, Matthew and John the Baptist might be making the point that the coming kingdom extends beyond like some lines on a map. What it is that you're expecting is not what he's come to do. That is, this is not simply a kingdom on earth. This is a kingdom that extends beyond that to heaven itself. What the Jewish people expected and what they wanted was the Messiah King who would show up and, and gather an army and defeat Israel's enemies and establish this earthly kingdom that freed them from all of the influence and power of the wicked nations. Now, is that a realistic hope? Like, is, is establishing an earthly kingdom on the agenda for Jesus? Yes. It's not that the people are wrong to think that the Messiah is going to establish an earthly kingdom and that he will, he will, in fact, return someday to do that. We believe that is still coming. The problem for the Jewish people in that day is they were ignoring sort of the tension that exists between all of the promises of God in the Old Testament, not just the ones that they happened to like. Remember how this gospel begins. This is the generation of Jesus the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, right? Those two promises are what start this gospel. The promise to David was that he would have a, a distant offspring, some son of David who would establish a kingdom and would rule on that throne and he would reign. And that is a real promise of a real kingdom. But the promise to Abraham was that a distant seed of Abraham, a child of Abraham would come and through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. That's a real promise too. And so how is it that those two promises interact? How can, 
How can all the nations be blessed by the coming of a Messiah king who will in fact establish a single kingdom of righteousness? Well, however it happens, it's going to collide with the Jewish preconceived notions about a military Messiah who's just going to show up and kill their enemies, right? That's not a blessing to all the kingdoms of the earth. The Messiah is not going to come and only bless the Jewish people. In fact, he's not even coming to establish a kingdom whose citizenship requirement is that you are Jewish. John says the requirement is you have to repent. You have to have a change of mind in regard to sin that includes a change of behavior in regard to sin. And if you do that, you are prepared for the coming kingdom of heaven. And if you won't do that, you're not going to be welcomed into the kingdom of heaven even if you are Jewish. Verse 9, don't think to say, we have Abraham for our father. John says, God could make some of these rocks into children of Abraham if that's what he wanted to do. A change needs to happen. You are not fit for the kingdom of heaven. And John's message is to implore them to embrace that inner change because he says the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It has, it has come near. It's closing fast. It's close by. Now think about this. Is John's task is to prepare a highway for the coming of the Lord. That means the Lord is coming down the road and you'd better get ready. The kingdom is at hand because the king himself is coming and he's near. The kingdom John's preparing them for is something more than just Lines on a map that mark out the geopolitical edges of a nation. That is just a realm. John's preparing them for a reign. It's not, a, it's not just the, the realm of some nation that can be on a map. He's talking about the reign of King Jesus. That's not to say that it's wrong to think that establishing an earthly kingdom is on the agenda of the Lord Jesus because he's going to do that when he comes again. But that was not the purpose of his first coming. His first coming was to bless all nations by saving his people from their sins. And anyone who will repent and believe in him, they immediately become citizens of Christ's kingdom talked about the kingdom before in terms of being both present and future. The kingdom is already and it's not yet. The, the Lord Jesus is king right now and the Lord Jesus will return to establish a kingdom in the future. And if that seems contradictory to you or hard to understand, then you might just want to think about how freely Jesus himself spoke of the kingdom in both present and future senses, right? In the model prayer, which I know all of us could quote the model prayer, he taught his disciples to pray, your kingdom come. We want the coming of the kingdom to happen. But he also taught the disciples to pray, yours is the kingdom and the power and glory. There is, there is the future and present tense of the kingdom even in that prayer. 
It's already and it's not yet. So let's talk about those for a second. How is it that the kingdom of heaven is already? I think John the Baptist would argue that the kingdom is close at hand, that it's present because the king is close at hand. So when Messiah King Jesus arrives, the kingdom arrives with him, or said in another way, the kingdom of heaven is in the present because Messiah King Jesus is present. In fact, Jesus states this pretty plainly several times. In, in Luke 11, verse 20, he says when he cast out demons that that was evidence that surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. In Luke 17, the Pharisees asked Jesus about when the kingdom of God would come. And his response to them was, The kingdom of God does not come with observation, nor will they say, See here or see there, for indeed the kingdom of God is within you. The present expression of the kingdom is not simply something that can be seen. It's not a thing that you can point at and say, look, there it is, or it's lines on a map. It is the inner quality of those people who are subjects of King Jesus. And that is exactly what John the Baptist has come to initiate, right? Repent. Have that inner change because that is what is required to be part of the kingdom of heaven. And so believers who have repented of their sin and trusted in the Lord Jesus are right now uh, residents and, and have citizenship in Christ's kingdom. That's what Paul tells the Philippians, right? Our citizenship is in heaven. Or in Colossians 1.13, he explains the work of Jesus in salvation is or the work of God in salvation is delivering us from the power of darkness and transferring us into the kingdom of his dear son. When the Lord Jesus stood before the Roman governor Pontius Pilate, who asked him, are you really a king then? Jesus did not deny that he's a king. He did not deny his kingship. But remember what he said? My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom was of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I wouldn't be delivered to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. The kingdom, not of this world, the kingdom of heaven, arrived when Messiah King Jesus arrived. And to be part of that kingdom requires an inner change that takes place when you repent of your sin and have faith in Jesus. It's not the outer fighting for a a piece of land or uh, an area of territory. So the kingdom is already, but the kingdom also is not yet. How is it that the kingdom of heaven is not yet? Well, when we say Jesus is king and we assert that we are citizens of his kingdom, none of that is to not to deny that there is a sense in which the kingdom is yet to come in its fullness. We pray your kingdom come just as Jesus taught us. When the disciples of Jesus in Acts chapter 1 verse 6 asked him, Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus' response was not, Don't you know that this is the kingdom? 
the kingdom exists inside of you and that's all there is? No, he didn't challenge their ideas that, that he would come and establish a kingdom. What he said is that the timing of that is not for you to know. It's future, it's going to happen, but it's not for you to know when it's going to happen. Jesus is going to return. He's going to fulfill the promises of God because he is that son of David who will rule and reign. And we're waiting for that day to come in its fullest expression at the return of Jesus, his second coming. So Jesus is reigning now, but not as clearly or not as completely as he will reign at his return when all things are put into submission to him. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 2 verse 8. It says that God has put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now... We do not yet see all things put under him. In other words, there is a coming time when Jesus returns and the world will, will fall to its knees before him and he will rule as king over all. Revelation 11 verse 15 describes it as the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. It's important to understand this because only when we grasp that already not yet idea are we going to be able to fully embrace this lesson from John the Baptist in a, in a practical way. Again, think about what John is doing here. He is preparing people for the coming of the Lord. That preparation is not being done by literally smoothing out potholes in a highway or hammering down stakes as landmarks of, of Christ's territory. John has come to prepare a way for the Lord by preparing people for the Lord. He is preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And even today, our message echoes that same declaration of John the Baptist, the kingdom is coming because the king is coming and he's going to rule and reign on this earth and he is not going to tolerate any rebellion against that rule. Listen, the Messiah King Jesus is coming and he does not need your permission. He is not waiting for your invitation. It is not going to happen on your timetable. He's coming. You are entirely unprepared for the coming of King Jesus until there is an inner change in regard to sin. You need a Savior. And Jesus has come to save his people from their sins. And he's coming back to establish a kingdom of righteousness alone. And because we've been given the clear message of God, because the king is coming, because the people are not prepared to stand before him, the message of John the Baptist remains timeless and necessary. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You need to be prepared for the coming of King Jesus.